for the cold. We're grateful for the dark. We're grateful for this day, the way things change, but that you never change. Thank you for your word, which is a light to our feet. Help us, Father, to have ears to hear what you have to say for us this morning, and bless Richard as he comes to deliver that word. In Jesus' name, amen. Richard Dick. Thank you very much. I'll keep on doing that just to make sure everybody's awake. Bob, can I ask you to do my slides when uh, we come to the appropriate point? So, uh, unfortunately for you, I drank out of Dallas Shaw's coffee cup today, so I'm going to be a little more animated than normal. So, can we roll to the next slide? Thanks. I've got to fix that color. It's hard to see the highlighted words. So we're going to cover Ephesians 3, 8 to 13. And this is one of those places where, and I didn't expect to have this reaction to this passage. To me, the, the part that I always used to get excited about in Ephesians 3 was starting in verse 14. I don't know who's teaching next week, but, but that's a great passage. So make sure you're here for, for that. Uh, but then I was working on this, and this has great stuff too. So to my... Should I have been surprised at God? Probably not. But nonetheless, here we are. But before, because I sometimes get surprising to no one, sometimes get carried away, just to make sure I cover the two most important things. And I have to stand up here because Nace is here and he gets upset if I stand down on the floor. So the two most important things for you to carry away, one, the unsearchable riches of God. And I'm going to spend a little time camped out on that, just that... One of the things that struck me out of this passage, but representative of the whole book of Ephesians, the whole book of the, the whole Bible, really, of course, but is that, you know, those, those big skip bags you can get for construction sites, just throw stuff in them, and, and uh, like they're huge, they're 10 feet long or whatever it is, and you fill it up, and then, and then somebody, we don't have a bag big enough for God, okay? It's like uh, Roy Schneider in Jaws, on the back of the boat, you know, when he sees the shark for the first time, we need a bigger boat. We need a bigger bag. We don't have a big enough bag to cover the riches of God. We'll talk about it some. Obviously, we won't get to the bottom of it. We've been here several thousand years, and we still haven't gotten to the bottom of it. But uh, that's one of the big carryaways from this passage for me. The second one, and I didn't even highlight it here, in verse 10, that through the church... The whole point of Ephesians 1 to 3, John Stott covers this really well. Uh, the whole point of that section of the book is that word, church. It's us, not BCC, of course, the universal body of Christ, God's new creation, Jew and Gentile together. The church is the point of that half of the book. And then the second half of the book, is it's the point too, because it tells us how to live out who we are in Christ. So, just reading through the passage, to me, Paul obviously, though I'm the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable, and that word is translated differently in different versions. NAS has unfathomable, and we'll take advantage of that here in a minute, uh, riches of Christ, and to make all men see what is the plan of the mystery 
hidden for ages in God who created all things, that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose, which he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and confidence of access through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. So to me, though I'm the very least, it's interesting to go through, uh, and if you miss anything, it's all in the notes, but it's interesting to go through and look at how Paul describes himself over the years. And you can see this in a relatively short period of time because this period of ministry wasn't really all that long. In 1 Corinthians 15.9, written in about the year 55, Paul calls himself the least of the apostles. In this passage, written about three, years, three to four years later, he calls himself least of all the saints. By the time he gets toward the end of his life in 1 Timothy, he calls himself chief of sinners. Okay? Why is that? Did Paul come to have a steadily more negative view of himself? I don't think so. Paul came to have a steadily greater view of the grace of God. The incredible goodness of God who would take someone like him who had persecuted the church, and that's the thing that weighed on Paul all his life. Persecuted the church. Take him and say, okay, Paul, I know what you've done. I'm going to make you new, and I'm going to use you to help found the church that you persecuted. I, Jesus, the one whom you persecuted, I'm going to use you to help build my body here on earth. So was Paul uh, increasingly focused on himself and his own sin? No, he's increasingly focused on God's goodness to him in using him. He knew the depth of his sin. And I think we see this probably with, with uh, all really great saints or deep relationships with God. And I've used this before, but hopefully you won't remember. Um, so, so we get, it's a graph. So you're an engineer, you get a graph. So time and consciousness. So over time, we grow in consciousness or realization or quality of our walk with God. And it goes up a slope like this. But if we walk with God, if that walk with God is go growing, our consciousness of the holiness of God goes up at a much steeper rate. So that at the end of our lives, if we're consistently walking with God, our realization, the truth doesn't change, but our realization of the truth changes, our realization of the gap between God and us is much greater. So we end up where Paul ended up, chief of sinners. That's me. But God is incredibly gracious and uses me anyway. So this grace was, in Dallas, you missed my plug for you, by the way. Uh, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles. And what I wanted to bring out there was you can't see it very well partly because it's orange, but you can't see it very well because of the way it's worded in English. Those words preach and in verse 9, make all men see, to make to see. Um, Paul's doing two somewhat different things. So in preach, he's doing that bringing the good news. In make men see, he's, he's stripping back the darkness. He's helping light come into darkness. So two aspects. It looks... Okay, one of the, actually one of the other things I forgot to bring out on least of all the saints. I think one of the other things that God does in Paul's life, and he does it in ours too, 
you remember when Jacob was wrestling with the angel? That, remember that story in Genesis? And the uh, dawn is breaking. And it's a difficult story to understand, for me anyway, in context of what's going on here. How, what am I supposed to carry away from this? But, but as they're wrestling, the angel touches uh, the inner side of Jacob's knee and throws it out of joint. And so Jacob walks away with a limp, a limp that he carries with him, not specified how long, but Jacob carries that limp. Similarly, in 2 Corinthians, Paul talks about the fact that he um, had a messenger from Satan. Okay? Something, some physical affliction, its nature is not clear. Many think because of references in other letters, it was something to do with his eyes. He besought God three times to take it away, and God said no. Because my power is made perfect in weakness. Paul, as you are weak, I am strong in you. I think Paul was, or that God was doing this from the very beginning. Because remember when Paul does his name change in Acts. Saul to Paul. Paul, I don't know why I never knew this, but Scott pointed it out. Paul means little. Two aspects of that. Traditionally, Paul was a pretty short guy. Um, but the other part of it is, I think God was knowing Paul, was emphasizing to Paul, Paul, I'm the big man on campus here. You need to remember that, that you're Paul, I'm God. Don't get those confused. So, so that was another aspect of, of, uh, of this that I think God was dealing with. him. Okay, could you go to the next slide and then we'll go back to this one? Who knows what this is? You can read it too, I know that. But, okay, this is a sounding line. And on sailing ships, so we're on a sailing ship here. So here's the mast. Here are the, the uh, this is probably far too much to explain this, but I really liked it. Um, <laughs> so you get the ratlins coming down, and you get a thing called the chains here, which is a little platform sticks out from the side of the ship. And the leadsmen, uh, one on each side often, or actually often for smaller ships, just one, he would stand out here holding on, and he would have this thing. That weight there is lead, hence the name, uh, 7 or 14 pounds in the Royal Navy. And that, th that little hole you can probably see in the bottom of it, that would actually have wax in it, tallow or wax. And he would give it a good swing and throw it out and let it plummet to the bottom. And you see those little tabs there. They look like they're binding rope together, and one of them is. But, but those are actually marks. And as the lead sank, then uh, when it hit the bottom, he would feel that, and he could see by the little tabs what the depth of water was. Okay? So, a uh, couple, this is a minor, this is free actually. Um, so, you're coming up to, in the Mississippi River boats, when they would say it, Mark, and you've all, probably several of you have heard this, he would say, Mark, if it was on one of the tabs, he would say, uh, so by the mark, or by the deep, if it was between those markers. So he says, by the mark, twain, so two, two fathoms. So that's where Samuel Clemens got his, his pen name from, Mark Twain. Um, but the reason I bring it up, there are two lengths of line. There's a short one, and there's a long one. And the way I think of this chapter, the way I think of the book of Ephesians, is he throws out the line, and what the... And my understanding is what the leadsman would say if the, the uh, weight never hit the bottom was no bottom on this line. That's a long way of getting to 
God for us is no bottom on this line. We never get to the bottom. We never reach the outer limit of, or even the inner limit, if there is one, of God's riches, God's riches in general, and God's riches toward us in particular. As we come into Thanksgiving, that's a really great thing to remember. We'll never reach the limit. I mean, Paul says in Malachi, or Paul says, God says in Malachi, put me to the test. Try to outgive me. See if you can do it. Come on, cross that line. Because uh, we never can. We never can outdo God in his goodness to us. You can go back to the passage now if you would, Bob. Thanks. Uh, the other, the Greek word that's actually used for un- unsearchable or unfathomable is a word that means untraceable. It's like we try to see our way clear to understanding how great God's goodness is, and we just get lost. We just can't get there. It's, the trail is, goes too long. It's too far. We just can't find our way to understanding. Is there anything I can do about that? Oh, good idea. If I hadn't been standing up here, this wouldn't have happened. So, okay, Paul's goal, we talked about that, bringing light. Um, and when he says, to make all, thing, all men see what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God, God knew what the plan was all, the time, all along, of course. And he'd left us little uh, crumbs along the way in the Old Testament. But he'd never, deliberately, never given his people the, uh, the ability to see what the whole plan was. He, like, threw his cloak over it. I like to see that hidden in God. He sort of threw his cloak over it and said, at the right time, I'll show you what the whole picture is. And then you'll be able to look back and see, okay, yeah, it's been building all along. All those bricks were being put in place, and now we see the whole thing. All things to all men. I give you some verses in there. Paul essentially uses those words. I become all things to all men that I might by all means save some. Paul, it's, I don't know if you remember the Bourne movies, but, but in, the, in one of the, I forget which one, the first or the second one, um, remember when he's getting recruited and he's, he's uh, about to join the program. He says, are you willing to, uh, Albert Finney's character says, are you willing to, to do whatever you need to do to join this program or something. And uh, Bourne says, I'll be whoever you need me to be. And in a certain sense, that was Paul's perspective. He would, to Jews, he would behave as a Jew in order to identify with them. To Gentiles, he would behave as a Gentile. To those weak in the faith, he, he would behave as one weak in the faith. He wasn't weak in the faith, but he would identify, he would be as much as in common Stress that which he had in common with everyone around him to best reach them with the gospel. He would not compromise the truth of the gospel. He would not compromise himself, but the, all those externals, he didn't care. Whatever it took to reach people with the gospel, Paul was willing to do it. And so that's why he says to make all men see, but he recognized that not all men would see. So... <laughs> that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God. That's one of the most fun words in this passage. 
The manifold wisdom, it's like a piece of agate or granite or a jewel, and you turn it around. The word actually means multicolored. So it's like you're turning it in the light and you're seeing all those different facets. We'll spend all of eternity turning it in the light and seeing the manifold wisdom of God, and we will never come to the end of all the different views of that. Just like God's unfathomable riches, God's wisdom is so multicolored, so multifaceted, that we'll never come to the end of it. It's a pretty good way to spend eternity, actually. <clears throat> okay. The manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the principalities and powers. We've talked about this before because Paul refers to it, referred to it earlier in the letter, and he refers to it again toward the end of the letter. We are the actors in that cosmic theater. Remember, I mentioned it, I think, when I taught the last time. We're the actors in that cosmic theater. The audience is those principalities and powers. They can be positive or negative. Don't be necessarily misled by in the heavenly places. It doesn't necessarily mean they're the good guys. But they are watching us, the church, display that many-colored wisdom of God. Our thoughts, our actions, our words, our behavior on the parkway, our, uh, the way we talk to our children or even more to our wives, those are all part of that script that we're living out displaying, for good or ill, displaying the manifold wisdom of God. <clears throat> Why? Ask God when you get there. Okay? He has a plan and he has us living it out for his glory. Yes, it's for our good, but ultimately it's for his glory, displaying to them his power and the perfection of his plan. Because, you know, we think of angels and demons as these immensely powerful beings, and they are. <clears throat> but we sometimes lose fight, sight of the fact that they're limited. Remember when Peter talks about, he says, um, I think it's in the first chapter of 1 Peter, he says, things into which angels long to look. He talks about the gospel that way. Angels just can't get it. They don't understand. And this is the holy angels, the guys who who stayed on God's side. They don't get it because how would anyone ever turn away from God? They understand it, you know, uh, intellectually because they saw a third of their number do that, but they don't understand how anyone could possibly do that. And then even more, they don't understand how a, love, how a righteous and holy God could welcome them back and pay such a price to bring them back into his presence. But he does. So angels just, whew, I don't get it. And they'll spend all of eternity wondering at God's grace and mercy, just like we will. Okay, this was according to the eternal purpose which is realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and confidence of access. Even when times are really hard, and there are some folks in this room who are going through some really hard times who have gone, are going, probably for many of us will go, through some very hard times. But we never lose the ability, lose the access to turn to God unless we turn away from Him. He's always there. Our sins can make a separation, but it's not because He moved, it's because we did. And all the time, He's longing for us to turn back. 
It's like in the, you've heard, I'm sure you've heard uh, the prodigal son preached. And remember that, that in the, pro, the parable of the prodigal son, the father sees afar off the son coming and he doesn't wait. He runs. Of course, in that culture, for a man, a father to run was, he just didn't do that. I can understand that, frankly. Uh, uh, so, so uh, typical linear. Uh, so, so he runs to him. That's the father we have. Even if we, no matter how far we've wandered, how far we've gone, how many pigs we've fed, he's always there. We always have boldness and confidence of access. That word boldness there, it's not arrogance. It's not impudence. It's a confidence born of a realization of who we are in him, how he sees us. Not because of anything we bring to the table. I'm not, I don't have anything that I'm going to give him that he needs. Okay? But it's because I know how he sees me that I can come boldly and confidently, confident that he'll hear and confident that he'll act for his glory and my good. We've, we've talked a lot about that doesn't necessarily mean confident that he'll say yes <clears throat> or that he'll say yes now. But it does mean that I can be confident that he'll act for his glory and my good, my ultimate good. And to the degree I won't appreciate it, it's be, be to my immediate good too, but that's sometimes a very painful time. And you guys know that better than I do occasionally in, in our lives. But I need to be confident, I must be confident that he will seek his glory and my good. The last line there, last verse. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. From Paul's point of view, being in prison wasn't a huge deal. Hey, maybe the food's better. Um, at least I got food, probably. Although I think other people had to bring it in for you. But, but from Paul's perspective, remember what he says in Philippians, the first ver chapter of Philippians? He says, <clears throat> I'm in prison. Some people are preaching the gospel on the outside. I can't do it. Some people are preaching the gospel on the outside because they, they know what I was doing and they want to reinforce that. Other people are preaching the gospel on the outside because they're jealous of me and they want to try to show me up. My perspective, my Paul's perspective on that is, great, gospel's going forward with power. I'm in prison, three squares a day, four hots and a cot if you're in submarines. So, and... and the gospel's going forward. So Paul's perspective was, hey, I'm here. This is what God has ordained. It's not very pleasant. I don't argue that. But it's accomplishing God's will for God's glory. Uh, coming out with the big, the big halter and pull me off the stage. So let me pray for us. Thank you, Father, for your goodness, for the unfathomable riches with which you bless us. Be glorified. Help our hearts to grow in thankfulness. It's, a, it's the time when we set aside as a nation to do that. I pray that you'd give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to express your goodness to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, could you go to the questions there, Bob? Thanks.